This is The Memo by Howard Marks. Today, we're featuring another episode of The Rewind, in which Howard looks back on some of his memos over the years, discusses their origins, and considers their relevance to today's financial environment. Last week, Howard spoke about On the Couch. In this episode, he reflects on a related memo, What Does the Market Know?, which was originally published on January 19th, 2016, five days after On the Couch. Here's Howard. It's been my general practice to go on TV and meet with one of the interviewers that I respect on the occasion of each memo's publication and go deeper into it and so forth. And so the first memo on the couch was put out on January the 14th. And on the morning of the 15th, I went on Bloomberg and the hosts kept asking me, well, the market's down so much. Doesn't that tell you something? The market's down. Doesn't that mean you should sell? And so forth. And I practically ran back to my office afterwards to make the case that I had made on TV that the markets should not give you your instructions. You shouldn't take instruction from the market. And there are so many reasons why that's true that I thought it was worth a memo of its own. It's important that I point out in the beginning that I'm not saying the market is always wrong. My first book was called The Most Important Thing, and one of the chapters said the most important thing is contrarian attitude. And then there was a second edition called The Most Important Thing Illuminated, in which I and uh, four or five other commentators inserted comments in the book as to the importance of what's there. And my friend Joel Greenblatt, who's one of the great equity investors of all time, inserted into the chapter on contrarianism, you shouldn't just as a knee-jerk reaction do the opposite of what others are doing. Just because five people refuse to stand in the path of an oncoming semi-truck doesn't mean you should. And he's obviously right. Just doing the opposite is not the right thing. And one of the reasons for that is that the market is not always wrong. It's merely sometimes wrong or often wrong, but not always wrong. And by the way, before I go too much further, let me mention that in thinking about macro, I did point out that when the Fed and the Treasury announced their rescue measures in the pandemic in mid-March, and the Fed even came out on March 23rd and said it's going to be strengthening its program, the market started to go up. From February 19th to March 23rd, it had fallen by a third from roughly 3,300 to 2,200. And then on the 24th, it started to go up and it never really relented. And I didn't know anybody who on March 24th understood the full implications of what the Fed and Treasury were doing. I don't know anybody who on March 24th says, I'm going to buy because this is great. Everything's now solved. The problem's over. And the Fed and the Treasury are going to save the day. So I'm a big buyer. And lots of professionals missed it. So if nobody understood the import of the Fed and Treasury actions and nobody understood that it was the beginning of a massive bull market, why did the market go up? And the simple answer is that there were forces that made the market go up, which we didn't appreciate. And as I think back, I think the explanation is that there were very strong technical forces put into play that we didn't appreciate the strength of at the time. For those who are not familiar with the term, technicals is the opposite of fundamentals. So fundamentals means how the company's new products are doing, how the sales are doing, how the profitability is doing, how the management is doing, how the sector is doing, et cetera. Business questions. Technicals are about the market. They are factors that influence the supply and demand for securities without reference to the fundamentals. So the government gives out money. That encourages people to buy securities. Market goes up. Has nothing to do with how business is doing or how individual companies are doing. Interest rates go down. That encourages people to borrow money to invest in the market. Has nothing to do with how the companies are doing. Margin requirements are increased. You have to put up more money to have a stock market position of the same size. That makes prices 
decline because many people can't post additional margin and they have to reduce their holdings. So fundamentals, technicals. The truth of the matter is that the Fed and Treasury really took actions that we had never seen before in terms of speed and magnitude and some new tactics. For example, the Fed announced that it would start buying ETFs and fallen angel high yield bonds. Never done anything like that before. And of course, they did everything that they did in massive quantities on steroids. So I think the explanation is that the Fed and Treasury actions had technical impact on the markets that no one appreciated. So the markets went up at a time that I don't think any individuals thought they would go up. Sounds suspicious. How can the market, which consists of a bunch of buyers, go up when there's no optimism about the market? And yet it did. So I think we have to be aware of the fact that the market is not always wrong. And if somebody would have seen those first few days of rising prices and said, you know, this is telling me there's something going on that I don't appreciate, they could have made a lot of money that most people did not. I think to be an investor, you have to trust, you have to have confidence. And nobody, I don't think, is happy saying, I'm going to put money in the market. I want to make a big profit. I have no idea how the market works. And I have no idea about the import of the things that are going on in the world. They want to know that they're doing something that they understand that they can be comfortable with. And of course, I don't believe in the ability to explain all the market movements, but I saw something great the other day on Instagram. It said, people who are stupid are too stupid to know they're stupid. And people who are not funny are too unfunny to know they're unfunny. Similarly, the people who are looking for these explanations don't understand the futility of looking for the explanations. I think that they're much more comfortable responding to explanations, even if the explanations are wrong, especially because they don't know how futile most explaining is. The other thing is this. When the market is rising, there's this kind of a feedback mechanism. When the economy is doing well and the market is rising and everybody's making money and they hear the explanations, they accept the explanations because they justify the actions that these people have been taking and they reward them. It permits them to think they have always understood and it rewards people for all this wisdom that they have demonstrated by being part of the market. And it's so self-reinforcing. It makes people say, you know, if I'm making so much money, then I must be smart. If I am making so much money, then I must really understand what's going on. I think people reach for these explanations and hold on to them as long as they work and as long as they reinforce their own beliefs. If you're going to outperform, you have to see something differently from somebody else. You have to behave differently from the consensus. The consensus is guaranteed to do average. You want to do better. So if the consensus of investors is what determines what the market does on a given day, by definition, you can't accept the consensus as being right and follow its lead because that will incorporate you into the consensus and doom you to consensus performance. If you want to do better you have to deviate in some way. If you want to beat the market, you can't take your instructions from the market by definition. There's a great quote from Ben Graham, who was the co-author of Security Analysis, which is in many ways the Bible of my profession, and who was Warren Buffett's teacher at Columbia, very successful hedge fund investor, values in many ways the father of value investing. Graham said that in the long run, the market is a weighing machine, but in the short run, it's a voting machine. What he meant was that eventually the market figures out what something is worth and moves the price to that point 
And that's what causes appreciation or depreciation. But in the short run, it's a voting machine, which is to say, in the short run, the market reflects popularity. And if you want to win a pool on an election, you have to predict who's going to be elected. If you want to win a pool on investing, you have to figure out which investments are going to gain in popularity over the coming period. So our goal as long-term investors is to figure out value. We want to do the weighing earlier and better. And we conclude, we trust that eventually the market, the people who make up the market will catch up to us in our conclusions if they're right. And we'll move the price of the investment where we think it should be. We've already positioned our portfolios for that. That's how we make the big bucks. So in the short run, it's a voting machine. It measures popularity, but you can't predict popularity. It's hard to say, I think a month from now, people are going to bid Amazon up more than they do Apple. The people who engage in that kind of thinking are what they call traders. Let me do an aside. I hate the word trading. When I travel in Europe and the people hear that I'm in the investment business, they say, oh, what do you trade in? And I say, I don't trade, I invest. Trading, to me, has a connotation of short term. The guys on trading places traded in orange juice futures. I'm an investor. I try to figure out what companies are going to do and what their securities are going to be worth. At Oaktree, we have a bunch of people, they're called traders. Their job is to implement the orders from the portfolio managers, but they're not making trading decisions. They're not building portfolios, et cetera. So I want to distinguish between those two. But the point is that the trader predicts popularity, the person who was concerned with the short term. Because in the short term, fluctuations in popularity vastly outweigh fluctuations in company fundamentals. Company fundamentals don't change that much from week to week or month to month or even year to year. I mean, the outlook for a company's earnings in 2025 is going to be the same in a month as it is today. So there's not that much to do in reacting to the short term. We should all be weighing machines. We should all be thinking about the long term. However, and there's always a catch. When I read that statement of Graham's, I say to myself, if the long term, the market is a weighing machine, but in the short term, it's a voting machine, does that mean that when I think about what's going to happen in six years, that five years and 10 months from now, it's going to be ignoring that and only thinking about popularity? Or is it still going to be trying to triangulate on fundamental valuation? I think there's a logical glitch there. But the general idea is a very good one, that people who think about the short term are predicting popularity, and people who think about the long term are predicting fundamentals. In 2016, I was privileged to have dinner with Warren Buffett, and he said to me that for a piece of information to be desirable, it has to satisfy two criteria. It has to be important and it has to be knowable. And for whatever reason, the investment world has fixated on macro, as I said in the memo, roughly over the last 20 years. And macro has been in the ascendancy relative to fundamentals. So yeah, in the short run, I think that the macro overwhelms the micro. So it is important. But as Buffett says, it's not knowable. And I take that to mean it's not knowable. I can't know it and you can't know it any better than anybody else. Because most of the time, the macro continues unabated. Most of the time, extrapolation works. For many, many years now, the average GDP growth has been just short of 2% a year in the US. And not only on average, but year to year, it pretty much falls in that range. And so extrapolation of last year's results plus 2% or so gives you a pretty good focus on this year's results. The problem is that everybody else views it the same. Everybody else has the same forecast. 2% forecast of GDP growth is embedded in asset prices. And when the 2% turns out to be an accurate projection, nobody makes any money because the event 
the announcement of the 2% growth doesn't surprise anybody, doesn't necessitate anybody revising their positions in ways that move markets. But the forecasts that are really valuable are the ones that predict the failure of extrapolation, the ones that predict a significant change in level or in growth rate. So in other words, rather than a 2% growth, you predict a 6% growth or a decline of 4%. And if those things happen, if everybody else predicts 2 and has incorporated 2% growth in their pricing of assets and it comes in at plus 6 or minus 3, there's a surprise. They scurry around to change their portfolios in reaction to the surprise. That makes prices go your way because you're the person who anticipated it. You make a lot of money. That's the ideal, isn't it? But it rarely happens. Number one, most of the time things don't change. Most of the time extrapolation works. And number two, for that reason and others, bold forecasts of deviation from trend are rarely right. So there you go again. Your forecast has to be on an important subject, and it has to be right. When I think about the macro, I like to say more right than others. Being right is not enough because most of the time everybody's right because nothing changes. But it's very unusual to have a bold forecast of deviation from trend and have it turn out to be right. Back in the early 90s, I wrote two memos when I was just getting going. One was called The Value of Predictions, and one was called The Value of Predictions Roman Two. or Where Did All This Rain Come From? In those memos, I made reference to the poll of economists that the Wall Street Journal used to run every quarter. At the end of every quarter, they would show what GDP growth was, inflation, a few other economic phenomena like that, and who had it right, who predicted it accurately. They would run an article about how great that forecaster was to have come up with that. And then they would show the forecasts of all the, I think there were 35 economists, for the next quarter. It was most interesting when something really radical happened in the world. Let's say that the oil price was up or down 25% in a quarter. Totally unexpected by most people. One person had it about right. They would show you that person's picture and explain how that person came up with that great forecast and really lionize that person. If you looked carefully, you saw that the person who made that great forecast had never been right before, was never right again. Right now, inflation is an enormous macro topic. It is much debated these days. Prior to this year and prior to the impact of the pandemic events, we had no inflation to speak of, less than 2% a year. Most governments in the world wanted 2%. They couldn't produce it. People didn't think about inflation. Interest rates hit their high in 1981. I had a loan outstanding from a bank, and I was paying 22 and three quarter percent. And then last year, I borrowed some money at two and a quarter percent. So interest rates came down almost in a straight line for 40 years. Nobody had to worry about rising interest rates. As it turns out, I mean, people did worry from time to time, but they didn't have to because it didn't happen. And people didn't worry about inflation. That genie was stuck in the bottle. But uh, now, of course, that's not true. We've had inflation in excess of 5% year over year for the last four months, and people are worried. And they're right to be worried because the financial markets will be very different if inflation goes back to 2% next year and stays there, as opposed to if inflation runs at 5% for the next five, six, seven years. It's not crazy to think about it. It's not crazy to do something about it if you have conviction one way or the other. It's just that I wouldn't bet a lot of money on being right on that subject. One of the things we say around Oak Tree, and one of the things I say in the memo, is that it's one thing to have an opinion. We all have opinions. It's something very different to say, I'm confident that my opinion is correct. I'm going to bet heavily on it. Those are two different things. 
writing thinking about macro caused me to do a lot of thinking about the market. Is it never right? Certainly not always right. What are the conditions that make it right? So what does the market do well and what does the market do poorly? I think that the market is a very sensitive instrument. It's a sensitive observer. It tells you what's going on. It reflects current events very strongly. That's helpful. What are its limitations? I think the market's limitations are, number one, it it responds to current events. It's not a big picture or a long-term thinker. It is not a weighing machine in the short run. It is a voting machine. It reflects emotion and popularity and fear and aspiration and greed and things like that. It doesn't think about the long-term ramifications, the second-order consequences, and that kind of thing. And it's not so good at understanding the lessons that are counterintuitive, because by definition, the market is, I would say, simplistic. The other thing is, it does tend to overdo it or underdo it. Sometimes it only sees negative. Sometimes it only sees positive. Sometimes it can interpret everything negatively. Sometimes it can interpret everything positively. So I think the market should not be completely ignored, but neither should its dictates be swallowed whole. And maybe the answer is that the market's movements should be considered. And maybe with any intellectual excursion, we ask questions. Maybe one of the questions should be, well, the market was up 100 points yesterday. Is there any import in that? Is there anything we should take away from that? Should we learn anything? So as I age and I mellow, sometimes I find things worth changing. And where I was entirely dismissive of the wisdom of the market in what does the market know, or mostly dismissive, I guess I wouldn't be quite as dismissive today. I'm actually quite chastened by what happened last year with the fact that a 100% move over 17 months was initiated on March 24th, and nobody, including myself, thought it was merited. And you can't dispense with this subject until you deal with that frontally. And now, here's What Does the Market Know? by Howard Marks. My buddy Sandy was an airline pilot. When asked to describe his job, he always answers, hours of boredom punctuated by moments of terror. The same can be true for investment managers, for whom the last few weeks have been an example of the latter. We've seen bad news and prices cascading downward. Investors who thought stocks were priced right 20% ago and oil $70 ago now wonder if they aren't risky at their new reduced prices. In Thursday's memo on the couch, I mentioned the two questions I'd been getting most often. What are the implications for the U.S. and the rest of the world of China's weakness? And are we moving toward a new crisis of the magnitude of what we saw in 2008? Bloomberg invited me on the air Friday morning to discuss the memo, and the anchors mostly asked one version or another of a third question. Does the market's decline worry you? That prompted this memo in response. The answer lies in a question. What does the market know? Is the market smart? meaning you should take your lead from it? Or is it dumb, meaning you should ignore it? Here's what I wrote in It's Not Easy in September and included in On the Couch. Especially during downdrafts, many investors impute intelligence to the market and look to it to tell them what's going on and what to do about it. This is one of the biggest mistakes you can make. As Ben Graham pointed out, the day-to-day market isn't a fundamental analyst. It's a barometer of investor sentiment. You just can't take it too seriously. Market participants have limited insight into what's really happening in terms of fundamentals, and any intelligence that could be behind their buys and sells is obscured by their emotional swings. It would be wrong to interpret the recent worldwide drop as meaning the market knows tough times lay ahead. The rest of this memo will be about fleshing out this theme. Meaning, you can stop listening here if you've had enough or are short on time. The Nature of Consensus Opinion I based the above reference to Ben Graham on his famous observation that, in the long run, the market's a weighing machine, but in the short run, it's a voting machine. In other words, in the long term, the consensus of investors figures out what things are really worth and moves the price there. 
but in the short term, the market merely reflects consensus opinion regarding an asset's future popularity, something that's highly susceptible to the ups and downs of psychology. So, what does the market know? First, it's important to understand for this purpose that there really isn't such a thing as the market. There's just a bunch of people who participate in a market. The market isn't more than the sum of the participants, and it doesn't know any more than their collective knowledge. This is a very important point. If you believe the market has some special insight that exceeds the collective insight of its participants, then you and I have a fundamental disagreement. The thinking of the crowd isn't synergistic. In my view, the investment IQ of the market isn't any higher than the average IQ of the participants, and everyone who transacts gets a volume-weighted vote in setting an asset's price at a given point in time. People of all different levels of ability act together to set the price. They vary all over the lot in terms of knowledge, experience, insight, and emotionalism. The market doesn't give the ones who are superior in these regards any more influence than the others, especially in the short run. My bottom line on this subject is that the market price merely reflects the average insight of the market participants. That's point number one. If anything, I think it's emotion that's synergistic. It builds into herd behavior or mass hysteria. When 10,000 people panic, the emotion seems to snowball. People influence each other, and their emotions compound so that the overall level of panic in the market can be higher than the panic of any participant in isolation. That's something I'll return to later. Now let's think about the first goal of investing, to buy low. We want to buy things whose price underestimates the value of the underlying assets or earnings, value investing, or the future potential, growth investing. In either case, we're looking for instances when the market is wrong. If we thought the market was always right, the efficient market hypothesis, we wouldn't spend our lives as active investors. Since we do, we'd better believe we know more than the consensus. So by definition, we must not think the market, that is, the sum of all other investors, knows everything or knows more than we do or is always right. That's point number two. And that leads logically to point number three. Why take instruction from a group of people who know less than you do? In On the Couch, I wrote that it all seems obvious. Investors rarely maintain objective, rational, neutral, and stable positions. Do you agree with that or not? Is the market a clinical and rational fundamental analyst or a barometer of investor sentiment? Does the market's behavior these days look like something a mature adult should emulate? It seems clear to me the market does not have above-average insight, but it often is above-average in emotionality. Thus, we shouldn't follow its dictates. In fact, contrarianism is built on the premise that we generally should do the opposite of what the crowd is doing, especially at the extremes. And I prefer it. A case in point. The crash of 2008. The year 2008 culminated in the greatest panic I've ever seen. The events that built up to it included massive subprime mortgage defaults and the failure of mortgage-backed vehicles, meltdowns at funds that had invested in those vehicles, notably two Bear Stearns funds, the collapse of Bear Stearns, necessitating its purchase by J.P. Morgan for almost no consideration, rescues of Merrill Lynch by Bank of America, Wachovia by Wells Fargo, and Washington Mutual by J.P. Morgan, after it was first seized by the Office of Thrift Supervision. Decisions on the part of B of A and Barclays not to acquire Lehman Brothers, and on the part of the U.S. Treasury not to bail it out, leading to Lehman's bankruptcy filing. The appearance that Morgan Stanley would be next if it couldn't secure additional capital and widespread speculation regarding other firms that might follow. A massive downward spiral ensued. Among the contributing factors were precipitous declines in the prices of bank stocks, 
large-scale short-selling of the stocks, the uptick rule previously mandated that a stock could only be sold short at a price above the last trade, meaning short-selling couldn't force the price down. But the rule was repealed in 2007, so there ceased to be limits on when stocks could be shorted. Thus, short-sellers could force stock prices down, whether intentionally, in what in the 1920s were called bear raids, or just because they thought the stocks were right to sell. Dramatic increases in the cost to insure the debt of banks through credit default swaps. In the environment described above, the downward spiral in bank stocks was intensified by the following factors. Whether they were intentionally manipulated, I can't say for sure. It was easy to bet against the banks by buying credit default swaps, CDS, on their debt. It was easy to depress bank stocks by selling them short. The declining stock prices were taken as a sign that the banks were weakening, causing the cost of buying CDS protection to rise. The rising cost of CDS protection was taken as an additional negative sign, causing the stocks to fall further. I can tell you it had the feel of an unstoppable vicious circle. Some compared it to the China Syndrome, a 1979 movie with Jane Fonda and Michael Douglas, in which an out-of-control nuclear reaction threatens to propel reactor components through the Earth's core, from the U.S. to China. Thus, the stock of panic-ridden Morgan Stanley, for example, fell 82% to less than $10. But it's important to note that the negative feedback loop described just now was able to continue without reference to, and not necessarily in reasonable relationship to, actual developments at the banks or changes in their intrinsic value. Eventually, however, the Treasury restricted short selling in the stocks of 19 financial institutions deemed systemically important. Morgan Stanley secured a $9 billion injection of convertible equity from Mitsubishi UFJ Financial Group. The panic subsided. The economy and capital markets recovered. And Morgan Stanley's stock traded at $33 a year later. Do you wish you had taken the market's instruction in 2008 and sold bank stocks? Or do you wish you had rejected its advice and bought instead? In short, did the market know anything? There are three possible answers. The market was flat wrong in 2008 when it took Morgan Stanley's stock so low. The market was right. It properly reflected the possibility of a meltdown that could have happened but didn't. The market was wrong in the case of Morgan Stanley in 2008, but most of the time it isn't. I like the first, and the second is appealing as well. But while a meltdown certainly was possible, the below $10 price probably assigned it too high a likelihood. And, of course, I'm not persuaded by the third. A case in point. Senior loans in the financial crisis. While on the subject of 2008, I want to review the performance of senior loans. In the old days, banks made corporate loans, sometimes sharing part with a syndicate of a few friendly banks, but retaining the rest. More recently, the custom changed, with banks syndicating their loans widely to buyers of all types and retaining rather little. This process has more in common with investment banks' underwriting of securities than with the commercial bank's prior lending process. Senior loans became a significant area of activity for credit investors like us. They're typically their issuers' senior-most debt, so they're perceived to carry little credit risk. And since they pay interest at floating rates, there is no interest rate risk. Of course, with so little risk, they offer low yields. They're the highest quality instruments I've ever dealt in. Because they were considered so safe, loans were widely deemed appropriate for levered investment. And prior to the financial crisis, large numbers of highly levered collateralized loan obligations, or CLOs, were formed to hold them. Borrowing at low floating rates to buy senior debt paying high floating rates was very enticing, and the CLO business mushroomed. Senior loans were affected dramatically by the events of 2008. Since senior loans had been used to fund buyouts with purchase prices at high multiples of cash flow, investors became concerned about the issuer's ability to service them 
and especially to refinance them when they came due, since the capital markets had slammed shut. Loan prices fell to levels never seen before in the absence of a default. Whereas non-distressed senior loans had rarely sold below 95 in the past, now they fell to the 80s and then to the 60s. Because of the collapsing prices, market value CLOs received margin calls they couldn't meet, and banks seized portfolios and liquidated them in overnight BWIC, bid-wanted-in-competition transactions. The indiscriminate selling put further pressure on prices, leading to more margin calls and more BWICs, another prototypical negative feedback loop. The senior loan index was down 29% in 2008. That exceeded the 25% decline of the high-yield bond index. Why would senior debt fall more during a crisis than junior debt? The answer is that senior loans had been ground zero for buying with leverage, and thus for margin calls and forced selling, whereas high-yield bonds had not. The key questions were rarely asked while things melted down. What were the loans worth, and would they pay? That depended on the outlook for defaults. But in late 2008, few people felt they could assess it or could take the time required to do so. And neither did they question the extent to which the price collapses had been caused by margin calls and forced selling, rather than investment fundamentals. They just succumbed to negativity and sold. When 2008 ended, and with it the cycle of selling, price declines, margin calls, more selling and more price declines, the prices of loans stopped going down. And then they went up. The senior loan index rose 45% in 2009, meaning someone who invested on December 31, 2007 and didn't sell was up 3% overall by December 31, 2009. What if you had taken the market's advice in the post-Lehman meltdown and sold in response to the negative signal? You'd have a valid complaint, but whom would you blame? The market or yourself? What does a falling market say about value? What do big price declines mean? They mean market participants sense fundamental deterioration. But what price declines say is reflective not predictive. They tell you about the events that have occurred and how investors have reacted to them. They don't tell you anything that the average investor doesn't know about future events. And again, I'm firmly convinced, A, the average investor doesn't know much, and B, following average opinion won't help you attain above-average results. Most of my readers want to perform better than the average investor. As I've set out in Dare to be Great 2, April 2014, and in the discussion of second-level thinking, in my book The Most Important Thing, to accomplish that, you have to invest differently than the average investor. To do that, you have to think differently than the average investor. And to do that, you have to consider different inputs than the average investor, or consider inputs differently. You simply can't follow the signals their behavior provides. It's a matter of logic. If price movements reflect average opinion, following their supposed advice can't help you perform above average. Now let's think about the question of whether to sell. Here are some possible reasons to do so. Belief that the price is high relative to the fundamentals. Belief that while the current price may not be high relative to the current fundamentals, the fundamentals will deteriorate in ways that aren't anticipated by the price. In other words, the price is high relative to how the fundamentals will come to be viewed. Belief that the price will fall regardless of the fundamentals, meaning that by selling today you can avert a loss and or position yourself to profit by buying lower later. Do you agree that these are the main reasons to sell? Are there others? Are these all legitimate? For me, the first two are compelling. This is what the skilled investor thinks about. Both of these decisions are made relative to something called intrinsic value. There's only one intelligent form of investing. Figure out what something's worth and see if you can buy it at or below that price. It's all about value. 
But note that the third reason to sell mentioned above has nothing to do with value. The price may be high, low, or fair relative to the fundamentals today or what they're expected to be tomorrow. You just sell because you think the price will fall. First, does it make sense to sell something if the price is low relative to the fundamentals just because you fear it may fall in the short run? A long-term value investor holds or buys when price is low relative to value. Low price relative to value is his dream. Why sell a low-priced asset just because you think it's going to fall for a while? Most people understand the challenge in dealing with two-decision stocks. You sell because you think the price may fall, even though it may be something you'd like to hold for the long term. And then you have to figure out when to buy it back. Last year, Charlie Munger complained to me that there are really three-decision stocks. You sell it because you think the price is full. You have to figure out when to buy it back. And in the meantime, you have to come up with something else to do with your money. In my experience, most people who are lucky enough to sell something before it goes down get so busy patting themselves on the back that they forget to buy it back. All other things being equal, as something falls in price, you should want to own it more, not less. The buy-and-hold value investor is stalwart, ignoring price fluctuations. Even better, the contrarian moves opposite to the market, buying when the price falls and selling when it rises. Second, if not on the basis of fundamentals, how does one make the decision to sell for the third reason mentioned earlier? Essentially, two things give rise to changes in asset prices. Changes in the outlook, macro or asset-specific, and changes in attitudes toward the asset. In other words, fundamentals and valuation. Fundamentals are dealt with previously. If you're going to try to benefit from changes in price that are unrelated to changes in fundamentals, you're left having to predict investor psychology. If On the Couch wasn't successful in convincing you this isn't possible, this memo probably won't be either. My bottom line is that markets don't assess intrinsic value from day to day, and certainly they don't do a good job during crises. Thus, market price movements don't say much about fundamentals. Even in the best of times, when investors are driven by fundamentals rather than psychology, markets show what the participants think value is rather than what value really is. Value is something the market doesn't know any more about than the average investor. And advice from the average investor, obviously, can't help you be an above-average investor. What does a falling market say about psychology? Fundamentals, the outlook for an economy, company, or asset, don't change much from day to day. As a result, daily price changes are mostly about A, changes in market psychology, and thus B, changes in who wants to own something or unown something. These two statements become increasingly valid the more daily prices fluctuate. Big fluctuations, so the psychology is changing radically. And as I mentioned previously, emotional fluctuations, swings in market sentiment or psychology, do seem to be synergistic. That is, in crowd psychology, 2 plus 2 equals 5. While I don't think the price of an asset reflects more wisdom than is possessed by the average of its market's members, I do believe mass psychology will make a group swing to reach greater emotional extremes than its members would separately. In short, people make each other crazy. And when times are bad, like now, they depress each other. That was a factor in the edge enjoyed by our distressed debt team in 2008. They were able to buy at the market's lows because they weren't in New York where everyone was trading scary stories and getting each other down. Again, we can gain insight through logic. We all know we want to buy, not sell, at the lows, and sell, not buy, at the highs. So then, how can it be right to sell because of a decline or buy because of a rise? 
Advocates of this latter approach must think A. Declines and rises tend to continue more than they reverse, and or B. They can tell which declines mean buy and which mean sell. Some savants may have that latter ability, but not many. In general, I think it's ridiculous to sell something because it's down, just as it is to buy because it's up. As prices fall, there are some very genuine reasons to sell. Some people feel rising fear and have to lighten their positions in order to retain their composure. Some, having lost a lot of money, sell to be sure they won't experience losses they can't survive. Some have to sell to repay demanding creditors or satisfy investor withdrawals. These reasons are not invalid. It's just that none of them has anything to do with making money. Most mature investors know intellectually that short-term price fluctuations are low in fundamental significance, and that the best results will be achieved if they hold on to their positions and ride out the volatility. But sometimes people sell anyway, perhaps for the just-mentioned reasons. Doing so has the potential to convert a short-term fluctuation into a permanent loss by causing any subsequent recovery to be missed. I consider this the cardinal sin in investing. What do the media know? I'm usually able to find something in the print or broadcast media that helps me make my point. Here's how the New York Times led the business section on Saturday. Concern grows that market sell-off is an early warning of a U.S. slowdown. It may be time for everyone to take the markets seriously again. As stock prices started tumbling in the first trading days of the year, many Wall Street professionals were tempted to describe the declines as the sort of adjustment that the market has gone through in recent years before moving higher. But that opinion evaporated this week as the selling intensified. Concerns are now growing that the markets are signaling that the United States economy, despite its recent bright spots, is on the verge of a slowdown. The fear is that economic problems in China have set off negative reactions around the world that could ultimately weigh on American households and corporations. So the bottom line question is simple. Does the market reflect what people know? Or should people base their actions on what the market knows? And if the latter, where does the market get its information other than from people? For me, it's simple. If people follow the market's dictates, they're taking advice from themselves. I set a trap at the beginning of this memo, and I want to spring it now. In the first paragraph, I said, We've seen bad news and prices cascading downward. You probably glossed over it. but. Is it true? Leaving aside China and the market's gyrations, have we really been seeing negative news on balance? Isn't it just that people are fixating on bad news, ignoring good news, and tending to interpret things negatively? There are ways in which psychology can become real, feeding back to influence fundamentals. One is that declining asset prices produce a negative wealth effect, making people feel poorer and causing them to spend and invest less. And there are others. But despite the feedback influences of the market declines, I still would say U.S. and European economic fundamentals aren't negative on balance. On Friday, in the midst of the declines, I participated in a small lunch attended by investment professionals and current and former senior government economic and financial leaders. I'll spare you the details. There was a lot of on one hand and on the other hand, but no one thought there would be a recession this year. So then, who are the people creating price signals to which others should accord significance? I want to end by making one thing completely clear. I'm not saying the market is never right when prices go down or up. I'm merely saying the market has no special insight and conveys no consistently helpful message. It's not that it's always wrong. It's that there's no reason to presume it's right.
It is the goal of some investors to sell on declines when the subsequent movements will be down, but buy the dips when the subsequent movements will be up. If you think you can tell which is which from watching the market movements themselves, then we, again, have a fundamental disagreement. Future price movements can only be predicted on the basis of the relationship between price and fundamentals. And, given the market's short-term volatility and irrationality, this can only be done in the long-term sense. The market has nothing useful to contribute on this subject. January 19, 2016 Thank you for listening to The Memo by Howard Marks. To hear more episodes, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. This podcast expresses the views of the author as of the date indicated and such views are subject to change without notice. Oak Tree has no duty or obligation to update the information contained herein. Further, Oak Tree makes no representation and it should not be assumed that past investment performance is an indication of future results. Moreover, wherever there is a potential for profit, there is also the possibility of loss. This podcast is being made available for educational purposes only and should not be used for any other purpose. The information contained herein does not constitute and should not be construed as an offering of advisory services or an offer to sell or solicitation to buy any securities or related financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Certain information contained herein concerning economic trends and performances based on or derived from information provided by independent third-party sources. Oak Tree Capital Management, LP, Oak Tree, believes that the sources from which such information has been obtained are reliable. However, it cannot guarantee the accuracy of such information and has not independently verified the accuracy or completeness of such information or the assumptions on which such information is based. This podcast, including the information contained herein, may not be copied, reproduced, republished, or posted in whole or in part in any form without the prior written consent of Oak Tree. Audiation.